Well, howdy do, everyone. Welcome back to the Spooky Soup Podcast. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tessa. Okay, so I uh, still jealous about last week and how <laughs> you went to Goatman's Bridge. Hey, man, it's just a quick two and a half hour flight down to Denton, Texas, and you're there. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so today um, I have the historical story. You have the Reddit stories? I do. Yes. Awesome. Okay. Uh, before we begin, just want to let everyone know that whatever, if there are images um, associated with any of our stories, we will post those on our Instagram. You can check those out there and also our TikTok. If you would like to send in a story to us that, and you would like us to read it on the podcast, you can email it to us at SpookySoupPodcast801 at gmail.com or DM it to us on our Instagram. Please do it. Do it. Just do it. Or I'll beat you up. In the words of Shia LaBeouf, just do it. Do it. Okay. Uh, well, then I will pass the torch. <laughs> Thank you. All right. <laughs> so I'm kind of shaking it up for the Reddit stories. I've got kind of a show recommendation and then a Reddit story and then a news story. Awesome. Cool. All right, so have you watched the Murdaugh Murders on Netflix yet? Not yet. It's on my to-watch list. It's so good. I watched it while I was sick because I had nothing better to do. Mm -hmm. And it's only three episodes. And after it ended, I was like, wait, what? And I <laughs> rewatched it. <laughs> I, like confused you or you were just so sick you were confusing I was, yourself? No, it was just so insane i didn't know how to process it so i just rewatched it okay right on but i highly recommend it especially considering and this shouldn't be giving anything away because it's public knowledge at this point but the dad's in prison awaiting trial right so it's pretty wild that this is all going on like I find it's easy to distance myself from a lot of true crime stories, just like subconsciously. But then when, when it's happening in real time and they're showing like recorded phone conversations between the dad and his son and the dad's like, wait, is Netflix making something about me? <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty like, crazy because it's happening now. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. That Netflix did make something about you. <laughs> yeah. And it made you look real bad. <laughs> Yikes. Okay, well, are you going to spoil something? or? No, I won't spoil it, but to give you an idea, it's about this family in South Carolina and the Murdaws, that's their name. They are a long lineage of lawyers in the county that they live in, and so they rule everything. They're, like, insanely rich, and basically they have their hands in the pockets of the law. So the police, I'm pretty sure, are paid by them. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what the documentary insinuates, is that a lot of things went under the radar because the cops like kind of let things slide. And it just led to a lot of disasters. So I highly recommend you watch it, and everyone else who's listening watches it. Okay. I'll check it out next. It's, it is on my to-watch list, so good to know. Yeah, do it. And it's only three episodes, so it's easy to get through. Awesome. All right. And then for our news story, you've probably heard about this because it's been ongoing in Utah for a little bit. But 
if you have the children's book called Are You With Me, you might want to rethink owning that book. And I obviously can't tell you what to do, so do whatever you want. But if you aren't aware, that seemingly precious, innocent children's book created to help kids cope with a loss has a very dark history. I've not heard of this book. Well, earlier this month, so in May 2023, Corey Richens of Camas, Utah, which is near Park City, was arrested for poisoning her husband to death with a lethal dose of fentanyl, which was five times the lethal dose. Okay, sorry. Yes, I do know what you're talking about now. <laughs> no, you're all good. She murdered her husband, Eric Richens, last year, and a year, I believe, either to the day or the year after he died to the day, she wrote that children's book to help her family cope with the loss of their dad without them knowing that she's the reason that they lost their dad. <laughs> and she was hailed a hero for so long and she was even on a lot of news stations talking about her loss in the book. She was very popular, to say the least. But now the story's changed. Evidence shows that she tried to poison him just a couple weeks prior to his murder. A CNN article reads, In the 2022 Valentine's Day incident, Eric Richens became ill after eating a sandwich his wife had made him. After one bite, Eric broke into hives and couldn't breathe, the affidavit says. He used his son's EpiPen as well as Benadryl before passing out for several hours. Eric Richens reportedly called his business partner about the incident when he woke up. Prior to his death, Eric Richens had changed his personal life insurance policy to make sure his sister was the beneficiary without his wife's knowledge. He was looking into a divorce and wanted his kids to be taken care of. So, that being said, this all kind of lines up with a lot of familicides and spousal murders we've seen going on lately, where there's either money troubles, issues with the house, or a divorce. I mean, we had that family from southern Utah get killed, the father murdered everyone, probably because the wife wanted a divorce. Um, we all know the story about Chris Watts. Their marriage was in trouble. So it's just interesting to see this pattern happening again and again and again. And so to round it up, she tried to poison him once already, tried to put his life insurance policy in her own name, and he was looking for a divorce. She then killed him with $900 worth of fentanyl, and she had the audacity to write a children's book for dealing with grief. <laughs> yeah, I hope she rots. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, she she killed her husband, and then tr is she tried to find a way to profit off yeah, off of it. Off of it, she's probably like, "Dang, nine hundred dollars worth of fentanyl got me in the hole. Like, <laughs> I need some money." <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah, what a horrible person. Hopes I hope she rots as well. Yeah. Rot. Alrighty. And then my last story comes to you from Reddit on r slash backwoods creepy, posted by It's Not a Jeep Thing. And it's titled Native American Gravesite and the Figure in the Woods. So I've been lurking here for a while and recently made a formal Reddit account again after a long absence, so I figure now is the time to tell my own story. 
My family has a hunting cabin in a national forest of Pennsylvania. My grandpa, who worked in a steel mill in Pittsburgh, bought the land in the 70s whenever the real estate agents used to go into the mills and post ads for huge plots of lands that the steel workers would break up and all get their own plots for dirt cheap, then help each other build their camps. Allegedly, there was a gravesite found on the property that my grandpa bought. The details aren't exactly clear how this was discovered, but apparently some type of survey was done before the property was sold. An archaeologist from the University of Pittsburgh just uncovered a very old Native American grave. They excavated the grave, but the pit, by that point now just a depression in the ground, was still there. This was on my grandpa's property, about 200 yards from the cabin. Of course I don't know that any of this is true, but the depression was, and as far as I know, is still there. And that was the story we were all told. Of course when I was a kid, my cousins and I used to do very dumb and disrespectful things, like go to the site in the middle of the night and dare each other to lay down in the grave. I probably was about 10 years old when this happened in the early 90s. My dad swears he doesn't remember this, but my cousin and I keep in touch with, and he clearly remembers it also. We were sitting around the campfire, roasting hot dogs and marshmallows, talking, that type of thing. Obviously, there was no alcohol on my part as I was 10 years old, and my dad didn't drink either. I remember my dad shushing everyone, and my older cousins and my dad were talking about seeing somebody in the woods. My dad is telling everybody to be quiet, and he shines a flashlight into the woods. We don't see anybody. We go back to our business, and one of my cousins shout that there he is again. By shielding the light from the fire, you can see a wispy, grayish human figure walking through the woods slowly, like prowling, like he's trying to not make any noise. He was walking from our left as if he came from behind the cabin and was crossing the wood line along our left and then across the front of the yard just along the trees, but probably 50 yards or so from us, taking a wide turn to avoid us. Nobody said a word. My dad and one of my cousins both shined flashlights several times, but he would disappear. You could only see him in the dark and after your eyes adjusted. At some point, he walked in the field of view where the fire was between us and him, and we never saw him again. The creepy part is the direction he was walking was toward the gravesite. We had never seen this before and never saw it again. I probably spent a week every summer at this camp until I was about 20. Family drama and weirdness after my grandpa died kind of ruined the camp for us, and I haven't been back. Needless to say, we didn't mess with the grave again after that. Yikes. Yowza. I, I would hope they wouldn't mess with it again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As a kid, though, I could see them still being like, oh, I dare you to get in it. <laughs> But yeah, that's fair. I probably would do the same, I guess. Yeah. But that's terrifying. It's like that movie, Lights Out, where when the lights are on, you can't see the figure, but then the lights turn off and you can see the girl like hiding in the shadow. And then she like runs up on you. Yeah. 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 That movie was terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> and then I went back and watched it uh, not too long ago and I was like, man, this movie is not as scary as I remember. Just kidding. It was still terrifying. <laughs> It's pretty creepy. It is very creepy. I was like, really? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. It's okay. one of the better PG-13 horror movies. I feel like the best scares are in the rated R's, but considering it's PG-13, they do a pretty good job. I think so, too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Are you ready for my story? Yes, I am. Let's do it. So I titled this story, The Wrong Killer. Ooh, interesting. Okay. So this case sparked outrage throughout the UK for years. The story I'm about to tell you is one of the most unfortunate and wrongful convictions Europe has ever seen. So Timothy John Evans was born on November 20th, 1924 in Myrtle, Tidfill, a town in South Wales, United Kingdom. He grew up in a troubled family environment and faced numerous challenges throughout his early life. Evans had a limited education and struggled academically. He had difficulty in school and did not receive much formal education. His upbringing was marked by poverty and instability, which likely contributed to his later troubles. During his childhood, Evans faced a significant health setback when he developed a persistent tubercular verruca on his right foot. The condition never fully healed, and this unfortunate circumstance further impeded his education, leading to his limited literacy skills as he entered adulthood. As a consequence of his disrupted schooling, Evans struggled with reading and writing. He had difficulty comprehending lengthy documents and often relied on others to read them to him. However, he did possess some capacity to read simpler materials such as comic books, newspaper, football reports, and basic texts found on his wages and receipts. Despite his challenges, he found some solace in, in these more accessible forms of reading material. As a young man, Evans found it challenging to maintain steady employment. He took on various odd jobs to make ends meet, but he often struggled with financial difficulties. This unstable financial situation likely added to the strain on his personal life. He, Evans was pretty much, he was an okay guy. He was just trying to live his life with a bad foot. Um, and while attending school, he became a painter and decorator. But as you know, things in things in life happen, and he moved on to the next job, which was working in the coal mines. But due to his bad foot, he had to quit that job and move back in with his parents until he could find something new. And to give you a little bit more context, Evans had issues with his own personality. He was very self-conscious due to his lack of literacy. He would often make up stories to boost his self-esteem, and people learned to roll their eyes when whenever Evans would boast about himself. So, Evans, he, he met his future love, and her name is Beryl Thornley. They were set up on a blind date. Their married life was marked by both moments of joy and significant challenges. The couple settled in Nottington Hill, London, where they lived in a rented top-level flat at 10 Rillington Place. And in 1948, Beryl gave birth to their first child, Geraldine, a baby girl. However, their marriage would soon be plagued by tragedy and turmoil. Beryl and Timothy experienced financial difficulties. They struggled to make ends meet. Their limited financial resources added to strain 
added strain to their relationship and made it challenging for them to build a stable and comfortable life together. The two were always quarreling over a variety of things. Money was always tight. Timothy would waste the money they did have on alcohol. He was a heavy drinker, and it didn't help his temper. Beryl was known to be super lazy and an awful housekeeper. She was in charge of the finances and didn't do such a great job herself. And neighbors constantly complained of hearing banging and yelling as the couple were never quiet when it came to their arguments. Sometimes they even neighbors would even complain of um, fights, like they could hear them fighting physically. So it was it was pretty intense. Yeah, it sounds like it. In 1949, Beryl told the news to Timothy that she was pregnant. You think they would be thrilled, but that was not the case. Their financial situation was so bad, Beryl decided it would be best to abort the baby. And although knowing full well the situation they were in, Timothy disagreed. After some time in convincing, he gave in and eventually did agree to aborting the baby. So, this is where the story gets interesting. And I apologize, that was a lot of buildup, but I just wanted you to get to know the characters of this story. No apologies needed. So, yeah, I feel like I can picture them really well now. So we got Timothy, and we got Beryl, and Geraldine, right? So on November 30th, 1949, Evans walked into the police station and told them that he killed his own wife. When police asked him how she died, he replied with a very strange confession. Evans explained to police that he gave a bottle of some type of medicine to Beryl to take to abort the fetus. She drank it, died, and Evans claimed to have taken her body and thrown it in the sewer outside their home. He also explained how he had arranged plans to have someone look after Geraldine while he leaves for Wales to visit family. So police took his confession, went to their home to search for the search through the sewer, and that is where they found nothing. The police thought the whole thing was completely strange. Why leave your daughter here and go visit family by yourself? Why dump the body right, si- right outside the home and not try to hide it any better? And also, um, police noted that it took three to four officers to lift the manhole cover up where the supposedly hidden body was. And um, there's no way Evans did it on his own. Yeah, if that's you, suspicious. Yeah, if you look at pictures of Evans... Um, He's a small-looking guy, and I couldn't exact. I I tried to find um, his height and weight, and I couldn't really find anything. Um, but yeah, once again, if you look at pictures, he's not a big dude. So, police took that all into consideration and realized, yeah, there was no way he could lift that manhole cover on his own. So the authorities asked him again, "What happened? Like, dude, don't lie to us. Like, well, like, why are you being weird and telling us this crazy story?" So he actually caved and told them a completely different story. Evans and Beryl approached a man. So Timothy and Beryl approached a man they knew called John Christie. They asked him if he would be willing to perform an abortion because abortion was illegal in the UK at the time, to which Christie eagerly agreed. On November 8th, 1949, Evans returned home extremely nervous and anxious to know how the procedure went. So he went to work for the day and then... Um, yeah, coming back home, super anxious, hoping all, all went well. 
um, Christy informed Evans that something went completely wrong and Beryl died during the abortion. Why Why he did this, I don't really know, but Evans left Geraldine with Christy to look after, and that's when he left home for a few days to stay with family. So, sorry, he didn't go to work. He went to go stay with family during this time. So, Christy said, leave your daughter here with Beryl, go be with family, and I'll take care of the rest, and I'll see you in a few days. Wow, how trustworthy. (laughs) Kind of strange, right? That's just baffling. That's so strange. Yeah. So, with this new information, police turned to 10 Rillington Place, where they lived, and turned it completely upside down looking for evidence. Eventually, they did find the body that belonged to Beryl. It was wrapped in a tablecloth, hiding in the tiny backyard of 10 Rillington Place. So, if you guys have been to the UK, um, they don't have a ton of space in these... um, I don't know what you call them, like townhouse, town, townhome apartments. So like tiny, tiny little backyards. So that's, that's when something completely shocking happened. Laying next to Beryl was the body of little Geraldine. They both had been strangled and buried. Police were so confused at this point. Evans never mentioned that he killed his daughter. If he confessed to killing Beryl, why didn't he also confess to killing Geraldine? It just wasn't making sense. Right. He wouldn't really have anything left to lose at that point. Right. The police took the clothing from both bodies and presented them to Evans. They asked him if he recognized them, and of course, he did. But something was off to Evans. Why were they showing Geraldine's clothes to him? That's when they informed Evans that they found Geraldine's body. His reaction to to all this information, he was completely thrown off. Um, they said that he he looked incredible, like he was he looked surprised. He was so depressed, and you could tell that he like. And in that moment, that you could tell he was just dealing with all this sadness and confusion and dread. So authorities asked him if he also killed Geraldine, to which Evan Evans replied, "Yes." What? This is when he changed his story for a third time. Evans claimed that he strangled Beryl after an argument over finances, and then he strangled Geraldine a few days later before leaving town to visit family. He claimed to have hidden the bodies in the washroom behind 10 Rillington Place. Okay, but while on trial, Evans stated that he felt extreme pressure from the police to confess to the murders. The authorities interrogated Evans over the course of long hours, late into the night and very early in the morning, and overall forced a confession um, out of him, even though it was not true. This just keeps getting wilder and wilder. (laughs) So now here is the major twist to everything. Do you remember the guy I mentioned earlier, John Christie? Yeah. So like, where does this, where's this guy come to the whole story, right? So while on trial, Evans was able to give his 100% real side, true side of the story to the jury. He confessed that Christie was 100% responsible for the murders of both his wife and daughter. The allegation was essentially laughed at by everyone in the court. To give you a little background on Christie, he was the downstairs neighbor to the Evans and he did have a criminal record, but was largely liked by the community. 
He told the jury that he was reformed and now a really good person. He was a, a constable with the police force, and that, of course, made everyone kind of believe that he was this good guy. You know, like, oh, I'm not, I mean, kind of with the police, like, yeah, who are we going to believe, this guy or Evans? So, obviously, Christie denied ever performing an abortion on Beryl, and then even went as far to say that he never approached um, Evans, or Evans never approached him. Christie also mentioned that it simply didn't make sense for him to kill Beryl and Geraldine, so there was no motive. Essentially, it came down to Evans' word versus Christie's. After only 40 minutes, the jury came to a final verdict and found Evans guilty of murder. On March 9, 1950, Timothy John Evans was hanged for the murders of his wife and daughter. He was only 25 years old. Oh, no. <laughs> One key bit of evidence that was not brought to court was that two workers worked on the wash house that Christie owned at the same time Evans was out of town visiting family. So remember, this is the wash house where they found the two bodies. So to make that more clear, if these two workers would have come forward, they could have, uh, this could have completely blown the whole case out of the water because that means that Evans was not guilty of murder because he said that he, um, he put them, the bodies in the wash house. Right, but they, but were, they the were found in the backyard. Yes. Um, and these two workers, while Christy was gone out of town, they were there working. There were no bodies. Mm-hmm. So it just didn't make sense. For about three years, life went on. That was until Christy decided to move away from 10 Rillington Place. This left Christy's apartment vacant, and the landlord, of course, needed someone to fill, fill the space. One of the other tenants actually wanted to use the kitchen to cook a big meal. I'm guessing it was like a holiday or something. This person's name is Beresford Brown. When Brown was searching the cabinets, I'm guessing he was either looking for like utensils or like spices. Maybe Christy left something there. But he found something completely disturbing. What Brown found in the vacant apartment were three bodies that belonged to three missing women. These women were Kathleen Maloney, Rita Nelson, and Hectorina McLennan. Brown quickly alerted police to his findings, and they rushed over to 10 Rillington Place. The scene gets even more gruesome from here. Three more bodies were located, one of them being Christie's wife, Ethel. Also, side note, she, during the trial of, of Timothy John Evans, she was a part of that entire thing and said, like, no, my husband's a good man. He would never kill anyone. This never happened. Wow. Yeah. Uh, she was found in the front room of the apartment under the floorboards, and the other two bodies belonged to uh, one of them was a previous coworker of Christie's, and the other one was a nurse. On March 31st, 1953, John Christie was arrested for murder. Two months later, on July 15th, he was hanged for these crimes. As the noose was being lowered around his neck, Christie, with his hands tied behind him, expressed discomfort by complaining about an itch on his nose. In response, the hangman said, You won't have to worry about it much longer. <laughs> That's the best response. He was hung by the same execu- executioner that executed Evans three years earlier. Wow. Now, I know that's a lot to take in. You're probably thinking, 
man, I hope the Evans family received justice in some way. And they did. In 2003, Lord Brennan, QC, awarded payments to Evans' half-sister and full-sister. He said the conviction and execution of Timothy Evans for the murder of his child was wrongful and a miscarriage of justice. There is no evidence to implicate Timothy Evans and the murder of his wife was most probably murdered by Christie. So, Christie did murder Beryl and Geraldine. Yeah, considering his track record, I'd say it's pretty unlikely that two serial killers live in the same building. Yeah, and there's a photo of of Timothy. Um, it looks like he's leaving like a like a bus station, or maybe he's like leaving the police station or something. And there's like two detectives like escorting him out. And his face, you could just see, he's terrified. Like I'm guessing he just got the news about Geraldine or something, but he it is. I don't know. He doesn't look like a killer. Hmm. And so, I mean, it just, his his final confession was the right one, right? Where he was saying that he, you know, Christy is the one who 100% did the killing. And anyways, so the question is asked, why did Evans confess in the first place? It simply is due to the guilt he felt about how he was a horrible husband and father. The miscarriage of justice in the Timothy Evans case led to significant changes in the British legal system. The case highlighted the need for improved investigative procedures, the importance of thorough examination of evidence, and the potential for wrongful convictions. The poor guy was so wrought with this guilt of just being, yeah, like I just said, a bad husband and a bad father. And he just felt so guilty that he confessed to these killings that he did not commit. Yeah, that's but, awful. But when it came down to the wire, he actually did confess what really happened. And they didn't even bother to investigate what really, or what he was saying happened. Exactly. That's so horrible. And yes, he did leave Geraldine with Christy, and that was a bad choice on his part. I still don't understand yeah. why he did that if he knew. Because Christy assured him she would be safe and not to worry because he was so this remember he didn't want this abortion to happen in the first place so he was just so torn with with the idea of this like happening that he that john was like hey like go relax go be alone or go be with family i'll take care of your daughter all good like dude just go relax i'll take care of everything and so for him, that was kind of like, a, like you know what? Thank you. You're right. I do need this. Mm. You know? That's a big oops. Yep. Yeah. In 1965, an inquiry of the British government concluded that Timothy Evans had been wrongfully convicted and executed. His case played a significant role in the abolition of the death penalty in the United Kingdom, which occurred in 1969 for most crimes and 1998 for all offenses. The Timothy John Evans case remains a tragic example of how an innocent man can be convicted and put to death due to a combination of, of factors, including coerced co confessions, flawed investigative techniques, and inadequate legal representation. It serves as a reminder of the importance of safeguarding the rights of the accused and striving for justice in the criminal justice system. Wow, that story is heartbreaking, first of all. And so crazy, all the stuff that's come from it. Yeah. 
really sad. But um, as sad as it is, it did kind of help strengthen the investigation process. Yeah. Man, so. I love that executioner who was like, ah, oh, don't worry, it'll be over soon. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> to the actual murderer. <laughs> that was probably the last words he, tr- he heard too. Good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, yeah, that's my story. Excellent. So good. Thank you. Thank you. Do you have anything else for us today? That's it for me. Okay, guys. We'll scare you in the next one. Stay spooky. Bye. <laughs>